Good morning. It's Monday, the 18th of September, and this is Govind Rajathiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Indian stock markets continued their run on course for the best since October 2007. Oil prices trade high over $90 a barrel. Diesel is in short supply. Fleeing pilots spare parts crisis grounded planes. Indian aviation is buzzing with action again. Live events are taking center stage globally and in India. Will the momentum hold? And hmm, State Bank of India will give you chocolates if it thinks you will default. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. And the markets continue their run. Yes, Despite all the fear of heights, the Indian stock markets are continuing their run. Last week, the BSE benchmark jumped about 1,239 points, rallying for the 11th day running on Friday. At this stage, the Indian markets are on track for the best performance since October 2007. The combined market capitalization of 9 of the 10 most valued firms rallied by about 180,000 crores last week, with Tata Consultancy Services, or TCS, emerging as the biggest gainer. On Friday specifically, the Sensex was up about 320 points to a record close of 67,838. The Nifty 50 closed 89 points higher at 20,192 and both indices had records during the day. A glance at what's happening internationally that obviously affects what's happening here. Foreign holdings in China's equities and debt have fallen by about $188 billion or 17% from a December 2021 peak through the end of June this year, according to Bloomberg calculations based on the latest data from the central bank. Now, that's before onshore shares witnessed a record $12 billion outflow in August alone. To put things in a wider Asian context, the MSCI China index is down about 7% in 2023 and poised for a third straight year of losses that will mark the longest losing streak in over two decades. On the other hand, the broader MSCI Emerging Markets Index is up 3% as investors look for returns in other places like India and parts of Latin America, says Bloomberg. The moral of the story is that this is a substantially liquidity-driven market, including back home. In India, of course, we're seeing massive liquidity injections from both domestic investors and foreign portfolio investors, though foreign portfolio investors right now are selling. Speaking of liquidity, driving around central and south Mumbai on Saturday, I noticed that apart from the giant Ganesh idols moving on to their respective pandals, a sight to see in itself, at least two hoardings for initial public offers. Now, hoardings are of course a Mumbai thing and there are more of them here than perhaps any other city in the country, to its detriment of course. But I don't recall seeing an IPO hoarding for some years, if not decades. Maybe they popped up somewhere in between, but I don't recall. Maybe you can. And the companies concerned were not really known to me, except one which was a ticket booking website. I'm assuming if there are IPO holdings in Mumbai, there are in other cities too. Now this to me does suggest an overheated market. And also the fact that advertising of this nature suggests you are competing against others trying to raise money too. Well, all I can say is that one has to be cautious and do one's research. Many of these IPO rushes have not ended well for many investors in the past. And there are 10 IPOs expected this week with five new listings, reports say. They range from a sari seller to a masala company to a jewellery company apart from metals and wires. In many cases, there are substantial promoter offloading happening. A figure I quoted earlier last week was that promoter offloading this year has already crossed 80,000 crore rupees, twice that of 2022. 
So that's a lot of wealth creation happening, which is good in a way, but then also something that as an investor, you have to be cautious about. And incidentally, we've been fretting about small cap stocks going gangbusters and now, of course, their correction only all bite somewhat, though. Turns out we're not alone. The rest of Asia, too, has been experiencing a similar exuberance. The MSCI Emerging Market Small Cap Index, which includes about 1,900 stocks with an average market value of $583 million, is up 14.7% or almost 15% this year, compared to just a 2.5% gain in its large cap counterpart, where the average size is about $8 billion, says Bloomberg. Korea, Taiwan and India have, of course, led this small cap rally across the region. Remember last week we said how brokerage Kotak Securities said that many of these small and mid-cap stocks were extremely, to put it quite mildly, dicey. Sticking to overheated markets and switching to commodities, crude, as we discussed here earlier, has now crossed the $90 per barrel mark and jumped more than now 30% since mid-June, with $100 a barrel predictions floating quite freely. And it could get worse. Saudi Arabia and Russia have turned down the taps on production of crude that are richer in diesel. On September 5th, both nations that are leaders in the OPEC Plus Alliance announced they would prolong those curbs into the year-end, around the period for which demand usually picks up. We're at risk seeing continued tightness in the market, especially for distillates coming into the winter months. Toril Bossoni, head of the oil market division at the International Energy Agency, told Bloomberg News, referring specifically now to diesel. Refineries are struggling to keep up. There's also been pressure on them to make other products, instead like jet fuel and gasoline, where demand has rebounded hard, according to Callum Bruce, an analyst at Goldman Sachs, speaking to Bloomberg once again. The Vishwakarma project gets going. Back home in a strong skills push, Prime Minister Narendra Modi on Sunday launched the PM Vishwakarma scheme on the occasion of Vishwakarma Jayanti, under which traditional craftsmen and artisans will be provided loan assistance at a minimal interest rate without the need for collateral. This scheme has a financial outlay of 13,000 crore rupees for five years and hopes to benefit about 3 million traditional artisans and craftsmen, including weavers, goldsmiths, blacksmiths, laundry workers, barbers, among others. The scheme offers a collateral free enterprise development loan of 1 lakh rupee, first tranche for 18 months repayment, and 2 lakhs for the second tranche. Action in the aviation business. It's been almost too quiet for too long. The one-year-old Akasa Air has moved the Bombay High Court against more than 40 pilots for breach of contract, alleging that they quit the carrier without serving a regulation six-month notice period. Over the past few weeks, Akasa Air was forced to cancel a number of its flights due to such resignations. Most of these pilots are understood to have accepted offers from Air India Express, which, like Akasa Air, operates the Boeing 737 family of aircraft, the Indian Express reported. The airline has also sought crores of rupees of compensation from each pilot for loss of operational profits and damage to its reputation due to their sudden exit. Elsewhere, Indigo Airlines is now wet-leasing 11 aircraft and adding to its fleet to make up for aircraft which are grounded, thanks to an ongoing parts problem with its Pratt & Whitney engines mounted on Airbus A320neos. Over 130 aircraft now, belonging to different airlines, are still grounded across Indian airports, including Go Air which is yet to resume flying after it ceased operations in May. Fares have, of course, eased off the summer highs, but could pick up again. Where will demand and supply stand in coming months, and how are airlines prepared or not for the next surge? 
I reached out to Kapil Kaul, CEO of Kappa India, and began by asking him how he was seeing the latest Indigo announcement to Wetley's aircraft and then onwards the Indian aviation scenario. First of all, India was facing two problems. One, the supply of engines, which has been now a problem for a couple of years, is inadequate to the requirement and the induction schedule that they had. That's impacting to some extent and has impacted them significantly over the last couple of years in terms of the deliveries that they are expecting. But they're also having now a challenge with respect to the recent guidelines that we gave. They have found rare condition in the powder metal used to manufacture certain engine parts, which is relating to Pratt & Whitney 1100 GTF engine. And the update is about six to 700 of these aircrafts get grounded over a period of next two years. And these changes will have to be made during the shop visit. So they have two issues. One, the engine supply has been constrained for a while for various reasons. And the fresh update, which I said is a rare condition in the powder metal used in the manufacturing certain engine parts that have going to be impacting 6,700 aircraft. So Indigo has done the right thing to compensate for the challenges related to engine supplier. They are going to wet lease about 22 planes. What I'm hearing is they're going to finance lease another 10 planes. So 22 wet lease and 10 finance lease because they are very keen to maintain the capacity guidance that they have given to investors. So I think they've done the right thing. There's no other option. They currently have 45 to 50 aircrafts grounded and I suspect they will have more groundings going forward. Right. And are other airlines and their aircraft also facing parts issues, for example, on the Boeing side? If you see recently, Boeing has found out some manufacturing quality issues in 737 MAX from structural assembly work on the jet's aft pressure bulkhead. That would need to be corrected because their supplier has not only financial impact, they have also found out that the manufacturing issue is improperly drilled holes in certain sensitive parts of 737, what you call a misdrilled holes on the particularly sensitive part of Boeing 737 MAX. So I think it may impact some of the deliveries that AirAsia that Air India Express particularly is going to have. They are expecting about 25. There may be some impact of the 25 inductions they are getting, which we would know going forward, whether they maintain the 25 induction guidance or they may do lesser because of this issue with 737 MAX. Overall, I think the number of planes that are grounded roughly have 4550 of Indigo. The entire 56 aircraft of Goyer are pending. SpiceJet is operating about high 20s. They may have about 30 aircraft grounded. So potentially we have 130 to 140 aircrafts on ground currently, maybe even more. I'm talking only aircraft that are either because of the insolvency of Go or they are engine-related or some financial there are more aircraft on ground for usual maintenance-related work. I'm not counting that. So 135 to 140. Now come out of peak summer and entering winter. So what's your general outlook of the domestic and international in India right now, travel and otherwise? I think we had an exceptional quarter one. If you see that we have never in the last, perhaps been 20 odd years of deregulation since 2004, seen such an exceptional positive T on the yield side. And that was reflected in a record profit of about roughly 3,000 crores that Indigo report. And I think the financial conditions for most of the other carriers, particularly in Q1, not only in domestic and as well as international, was exceptional. But the quarter two was, was an almost opposite because quarter two saw an yield in domestic falling by about 15 to 17%. The cost side has gone up in June, in July and August, about roughly 4% in June because of ATF 
7% in July, 16% in October. So this quarter, 10-12% of the ATF prices have gone up. The rupee looks to be going to be ending around 83 plus. There'll be almost about a rupee more than the last June quarter. The yields have fallen down, costs have gone up, so it will get reflected in the quarter two financials. So things have got normalized pretty quickly in quarter two. But I think quarter three would be, again, a very robust quarter. World Cup going to happen, elections in many states. This is the peak period in terms of inbound tourism, domestic tourism, outbound tourism. So I would expect both on domestic to and international, the robustness of demand to continue. However, I would think from an yield perspective, things have started becoming normalized. In spite of these capacity challenges, I would think that we may not see the kind of yields that we saw in quarter one. Even on the international side, I think the kind of yields in the premium segment that we see in business class and first class will get normalized. But it will be a robust quarter. Quarter four would again be challenging for the industry. But the concern right now that most of them facing are the supply side issues. They're becoming very serious. In fact, India has a serious capacity crisis right now. We have no direction as to what would be the impact of both the Pratt & Whitney new challenges they're facing with the Pratt & Whitney 100 GTF and the Boeing 737 MAX. Perhaps maybe on wide body, particularly with 7879s, there is a bit of challenge. So I think overall, the India is having a capacity crisis of a very serious nature. And we don't know when it will get corrected because new issues are emerging. And this impact of Pratt & Whitney particularly is a serious impact, frankly. I would think that as an industry veteran told me, who is in Middle East, uh, he said to me that it seems that these engines were meant for Switzerland and not in India. India has faced a brunt. I'm not very sure any compensation could materially balance the kind of impact that businesses have had. So we are in a very, very serious issue. Uh, right, Kapil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, thank you. It's live entertainment all the way. In its global entertainment and media outlook for 2023-27, to consulting firm PwC had predicted that live events and entertainment would outperform the entertainment and media industry at large. Taking into account all live subsectors in the consumer space, PwC predicted a few months ago that pre-pandemic levels would be touched in 2024 with revenues of about $69 billion from around $67 billion in 2019. Moreover, live experience would grow at about 9.6 compounded annual growth rate, four times the 2.4% compounded annual growth rate predicted for overall consumer revenue. The month of April 23 alone saw events in Tokyo, including concerts by Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton and a punk band, The Star Bems. And then there are venues. PwC notes the inauguration of the Neeta Mukesh Ambani Cultural Centre in Mumbai, a world-class, multidisciplinary cultural space. Now, even if you're not a Taylor Swift fan, the word is Swifty, by the way, you would have noted the utter frenzy that has erupted worldwide for fans to catch her in person. Her era's tour that started in March and has paused last month is projected to gross $2.2 billion in North America ticket sales alone. And Fortune magazine has said that if concert goers continue spending at the current rate, the Eras tour could generate $4.6 billion in consumer spending in the United States alone. Tickets for her shows in Asia next year are obviously sold out. Back home, India is seeing an uptick in live events, ranging from the Big Bang Lollapalooza India show in Mumbai in January this year, which had the well-known Imagine Dragons in attendance, apart from other international names. Elsewhere, there was the Shakti of the Zakir Hussain and John McLaughlin fame who reunited and kicked off a global tour from Mumbai a few months ago. 
and then of course the Mahindra Blues Mumbai folks are familiar with. Interestingly, more and more events are popping up beyond Mumbai, Bangalore and Delhi traditional venues and beginning to spread across the country. I caught up with VG Jairam, founder of the Hyperlink Brand Solutions Company, organizer for Shakti Mahindra Blues and an upcoming independence rock concert in Mumbai, another event that hopes to capitalize on nostalgia to get a sense on where the live entertainment industry was going in India and whether this was just a post-pandemic resurgence or something beyond. I began by asking him whether he felt live events were seeing more action than ever before. There was a huge pent-up you know, demand or I would say feeling of frustration amongst the younger audiences and women and parents to not be able to actually allow their kids or allow themselves to go and indulge in the normal things that they would do, right? And when the whole pandemic situation improved and things opened up, what you saw is a huge pent-up demand actually come out and it was unprecedented. Not only here, I think even globally. What this also did in a very interesting way actually is that the Indian artists benefited the most out of this. When the whole pandemic opened up, travel was still not very easy. So the Indian artists basically started putting out their shows and people started buying tickets for Indian acts, which normally would not happen in that scale that we have now seen it to happen. So artists like Pratik Koha, the younger artists, you know, Chai Metos and all these guys, they suddenly started finding that when they were announcing tours, they were selling out because people were just buying tickets left, right and center. So this also gave rise to a whole ticket buying habit, which was pretty healthy. But this kind of took it to, say, level 5 to level 9. And every show was going full. So whether it was a gig in a nightclub or whether it was a mid-sized arena or whether a large ground, they were all going full. Also, to a large extent, the sponsorships, they were kind of also supporting it. And it seemed to be like a very perfect marriage of everything coming together. Because India as a market still draws a lot of revenues from the sponsorship market when it comes to live entertainment. Although that's kind of easing out. But that also happened. Now, there was a regular supply of Indian entertainment, which people started consuming over and over again in those two years, which is what I'm saying around the 21 later part and 22. Because of this, the sponsors also started coming on board. But what I feel is that this is going to start diminishing now. You are going to see it come back to the natural cycle. For example, even from a pure events perspective, because you know you have live entertainment, which is your IPs, concerts and all of that. You have the regular corporate work, mice, government work. You know, Then you have all your weddings and all of these things. While the weddings has no recession really, but the corporate work also... I feel that it's come back into the cyclical piece, which normally means that your July, August are low months and then it starts picking up again. So one is seeing that cycle already kick in as far as corporates are concerned. But as far as live entertainment is concerned, one has still not seen that fatigue. There are still tours running back to back. In fact, November 4th, 5th is a weekend, which is pretty crazy because what's also happened this year is that because of the World Cup coming in, a lot of people have pushed their plans to the latter half as much as possible. But then there are only that many weekends. So November 4th, 5th, I know, for example, we are doing the Mahindra Independence Rock. There is Space Jam. There's another festival that's happening on the same date. There's a Bangalore festival that's also happening at the same time. In Bombay itself, I think there are three or four. There's Sunburn. There is a Bollywood project. So there are multiple things happening on the same day, which would not happen earlier. Does this suggest that there is a change in terms of, let's say, the regulatory environment, the ease of setting up a whole event? I would not say that there's a lot of issues or permission issues still. Of course, every show needs a plethora of permission. Can we do it with all of them? No, but that's for the government. We've been representing ourselves as an industry through EMA to say that 
can you reduce this even further but then entertainment is not a priority for this country or at least for the political class till that happens until they understand the importance of the entertainment economy how powerful it can be when from terms of job generation in terms of tourism generation in terms of just getting things done at a local level that i think the priority is still not 100% there although we feel that with the central government currently yes they have really helped post pandemic with a lot of events initiatives which the central government is doing they are the ones who bought in the large format events as well it appears to me that you have more venues for example in mumbai itself you've got the nita mukesh ambani center where i think you yourself are hosting a bunch of events then there are more grounds that seem to be available is that a national phenomenon as well i still feel that the biggest challenge is still venues the infrastructure part of it of course the nmacc or the geo convention center are fantastic pieces of infrastructure for the city and yes we are doing a lot of corporate work there and stuff like that but in terms of having to do concerts there and at a price point all of those things are still something that one needs to work through the fundamental issue also is that we don't have enough venues or venues which are in that 2000 to 3000 range which is all set up which basically will reduce the production cost of putting up something like this so if you look at it from a just a simple statistic you take a city like mumbai and you take a city like new york new york has close to 100 such venues if not more and mumbai will have indoor in that 2000 around 2 or 3 because of that because of the price point this always is an issue like for example good old shanmugananda is 2700 seats fantastic but the location unfortunately with no parking and all of those things start to again create an issue again this is up to the government right because you have land and you can easily set this up and you can do a bot and give it up or even the stadiums which are there delhi is now slowly doing this all their sporting facilities which otherwise are just lying empty barring some usage are now available or open to doing cultural events which should be the way it is and it should be handed over to private operators so that they can actually utilize this and give revenue to the government and it can have those days where they have to run that so at least it's utilized and it's maintained well so infrastructure i still feel we have a long way to go be it film shooting studios be it multi purpose venues indoor as well as outdoor amphitheaters especially in the mid segment talking about the 2 to 3000 or 4000 and then the 5 to 10000 you know that category there are very few venues available so that always is a challenge to mount something so as you look ahead what do you see shifting in the consumption behavior young people presumably are the bigger drivers so shakti is a older persons concert and some of your other brands like let's say mahindra blues is also a slightly older persons concert but i'm assuming the present and future is going to be driven by younger people how are you seeing consumption and behavior there i specifically talk about mahindra blues to begin with while blues in most people's minds is something for a more mature audience but i'm really happy to share almost 60% of our ticket buying audience is less than 35 years of age in my sense of the business i feel that consumers are buying experiences if you look at even the younger audiences who are working on the millennials buying a house buying a car none of these things figure in their scheme of things it's all about you know hey you know what i want to go to a burning man or i want to go to europe somewhere or i want to do this i want to go to goa so it's all about those experiences because the audience is more educated in terms of the quality of experience that they expect for the money that they are paying so this is putting pressure on promoters and event organizers where they cannot take people for granted there will always be the pockets of 
the younger audiences, the millennials, you know, that's a certain kind of sound music that will appeal to them. But there's also a lot of us, you know, at our age, that's where the spending part is. Even the younger ones, the spending is actually the parents. So the millennials really are not spending. The ticket size that they operate on is far less. Whereas it's always the other two extremes which are like really moving on. And still the review is becoming big. In terms of the bar sales, the food sales, uh, merchandise, this is bringing in extra revenue. Also, we are seeing a huge uptake in the tier 2 and 3 cities. So, our focus actually is going to probably very clearly shift towards those cities now. That's where a lot of new consumption is happening. There is a lot of aspiration there. There is disposable income. And you'll be surprised that there are EDM concerts happening in Jaipur and Bhopal and Lucknow. There is a huge cultural movement happening there as well, which we need to tap into. That's another thing that we are trying to get out of our comfort zone of saying that Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore, but let's go down to smaller cities, which will really give us that additional growth that one is looking for. Right, Jairam. Thank you so much for joining me. See you, Govind. Thank you. Speaking of live events, India has another giant convention and exhibition center at Dwaka in Delhi called Yashobhumi inaugurated on Sunday by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This is of course in addition to the Bharat Mandapam at Pragati Maidan, another part of Delhi, which was also the venue of the G27. Both venues are pitched to attract conference tourism, something that India is weak in thanks to weak infrastructure. With a large modern airport and much capacity, Delhi is clearly stealing a march ahead in this regard, at least compared to most other Indian cities, and now has, quite sadly, left Mumbai far behind. Sometimes I wonder if anyone cares about Mumbai, that is. Nielsen, the global media ratings giant, has a new CEO, Karthik Rao, of Indian origin, and a Loyola College Chennai graduate. Rao is a 23-year-old Nielsen veteran who recently served as head of its audience measurement unit. These are tough times for Nielsen, which faces increased competition and a rapidly shifting media landscape that has made measurement methodologies more complex, says the Wall Street Journal. The shift towards streaming services has prompted some ad buyers and ad sellers to look to alternative measurement companies, says the Wall Street Journal too. Advertisers everywhere depend on ratings from agencies like Nielsen before deciding where their ad dollars go worldwide. And, hmm, the State Bank of India will give chocolates to potential defaulters. India's largest lender, the State Bank of India, says it will send a pack of chocolates to retail borrowers who are likely to default on monthly installments. According to the bank, it's been found that a borrower who is planning to default will not answer a reminder call from the bank. So the best way is to meet them at their home unannounced. The idea comes from an enthusiastic fintech company because SBI says so, but refused to name them. How interesting. SBI's retail loan book, by the way, grew 16% to about 12 lakh crore in the June 23 quarter, making it the largest asset class for the lender whose total book stood at about 33 lakh crore, growing at about 14% year on year. With two fintechs which use artificial intelligence, we are piloting a novel way of reminding our retail borrowers of their repayment obligation. While one is doing conciliation with borrowers, the other is alerting us on the propensity of a borrower to default. And to such borrowers who are likely to default, the representatives from this fintech will visit them, carrying a pack of chocolates for each of them and reminding them of their forthcoming Equated Money Installments or EMIs. Ashwini Kumar Tiwari, Managing Director in Charge of Risk, Compliance and Stressed Assets at State Bank of India, told wire services over the weekend. So I'm trying to picture this scene in Parliament. Honorable Finance Minister, what was the banking sector doing when they learned that loan defaults were rising? Distributing chocolates to borrowers, respected minister.
On that note, I do hope that you or I, for that matter, do not receive chocolates from our lenders and you do have a great week ahead. Do log in to www.thecore.in, subscribe to our newsletters, listen to our podcast and have a great day. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.